New York, this is Democracy Now! We are encouraged by the Department of Justice findings today. However, it is unfortunate that it took the murder of Breonna Taylor in protest after protest after protest through 2020 to come to this point. The U.S. Justice Department accuses the Louisville police of unlawfully discriminating against the city's black population and using excessive force. The DOJ probe began after Louisville police fatally shot Breonna Taylor in her own home during a no-knock raid three years ago. Then, apartheid American style. We go to Jackson, Mississippi, where white Republican state lawmakers want to set up an unelected superstructure to oversee the black majority city. We'll speak to Jackson Mayor Shokwe Lumumba, who has accused state lawmakers of colonizing Jackson. Then to Atlanta and the fight to stop Cop City. 23 more protesters have been charged with domestic terrorism. The reality of it is that the ones who are engaging in violence are the police, and they're from right here in Atlanta, Georgia. You got APD, you got Georgia State Police, you got GBI, you got Georgia State Troopers, you got everybody except the MARTA police who are engaging in violence and terrorism against the people who are standing against this illegal land swap. All that and more coming up. democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department has issued a scathing report on the Louisville, Kentucky Police Department documenting a pattern or practice of excessive force, unlawful stops, discrimination, failure to investigate sexual and domestic violence and other charges. The findings follow a two-year probe into the Louisville Metro Police Department that followed the killing of Breonna Taylor, a black Louisville health care worker who was shot and killed in her own home during a 2020 no-knock police raid. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the findings of the 19th page report on Wednesday. The department has concluded that there is reasonable cause to believe that Louisville Metro and LMPD engaged in a pattern or practice of conduct that violates the First and Fourth Amendments of the Constitution. Findings are likely to lead to a consent decree that would see a federal monitor assigned to oversee the Louisville Police Department. Meanwhile, the Justice Department said Wednesday it will review specialized police units around the country, including the Memphis Police Department's now disbanded Scorpion Unit, after five former Memphis officers were charged with murder and aggravated assault in the beating death of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black father. That announcement came as a Shelby County judge blocked the release of 20 hours of additional video footage and internal documents related to a Memphis City investigation into Nichols' killing. The U.S. Senate voted overwhelmingly Wednesday to block an effort by the District of Columbia to overhaul D.C.'s criminal code. President Biden said he would sign the Senate resolution in a victory for Republicans who led the effort to stop measures such as reducing maximum sentences for carjackings and expanding the right to jury trials for certain misdemeanors. D.C. leaders and activists condemn both parties in Congress and Biden for interfering in their governance. This is D.C. Councilmember Janice Lewis-George speaking at a hands-on off D.C. rally. Congressmen years back and today have stated a city, a majority black city with black leaders in power cannot lead themselves. That is facts. 
here time and time again. So statehood is not just a human rights issue and a voting rights issue. It is a racial justice issue. In Mississippi, the NAACP says it'll challenge several GOP-led bills making their way through the legislature, which threaten residents in the majority black capital of Jackson by handing state police more power and granting the state control over Jackson's troubled water system. We'll go to Jackson, Mississippi, later in the broadcast to speak with Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba and author and activist Makani Tamba. In Ukraine, the International Atomic Energy Agency says the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has once again lost its connection to external power, is relying on diesel generators as a last line of defense against a nuclear meltdown. The plant's operator— <clears throat> said it was the sixth time since Russia's invasion. The plant has had to turn to emergency backups to maintain critical cooling systems for its six reactors. The nuclear plant's outage came as Russia fired a barrage of missiles across 10 regions of Ukraine, killing at least nine civilians and knocking out electricity supplies. On Wednesday, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited Kyiv for talks with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Both leaders said it was critically necessary to global food security, that Russia extend an agreement allowing Ukraine to export grain from its Black Sea ports. The Pentagon's blocking the Biden administration from sharing evidence about Russian atrocities in Ukraine with the International Criminal Court in The Hague. That's according to The New York Times, citing current and former U.S. officials who say Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin objected over concerns that sharing evidence would set a precedent, making it more likely the ICC would prosecute U.S. military personnel. The 1998 Rome Statute that established the International Criminal Court has been ratified by 123 nations, but not the United States, Russia or Ukraine. A Saudi engineer who was locked up at Guantanamo Bay prison for 21 years without charge has been released and repatriated. 48-year-old Qasem al-Sharbi was detained in Pakistan following the 9-11 attacks, where he says he was tortured before being sent to Guantanamo. 31 people remain locked up at the U.S. military prison. 17 have been cleared for transfer if a host country can be identified. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed three Palestinians in another raid in Jenin, less than 48 hours after a previous raid in the city killed six Palestinians. Meanwhile, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin arrived in Tel Aviv today after delaying his visit by one day amidst a heightened spate of violence against Palestinians and ongoing mass protests against the Israeli government's plan to gut the judiciary. Austin is expected to also discuss Iran during his visit to Israel. The Republic of Georgia has withdrawn a controversial bill that critics say violated press freedom and civil society after protests rocked the capital, Tbilisi. The proposed law would have required non-governmental organizations and independent media outlets that receive over 20 percent of their funding from international sources to declare themselves agents of foreign influence. The European Union, which Georgia is hoping to join, welcomed the news. 
The U.S. Federal Reserve has signaled it will hike interest rates higher and faster than expected in order to slow down inflation after recent data showed a stronger economy than forecast. Last year, the Fed raised interest rates at the fastest pace since the 80s. During a Senate hearing Tuesday, Democrat Elizabeth Warren blasted Fed Chair Jerome Powell for, quote, gambling with people's lives by imposing rate hikes that would increase unemployment from 3.4 to 4.6 percent by the end of the year, according to the Fed's own projections. Do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't, uh, I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not... But it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs. People who are working right now, making their mortgages. The White House has criticized Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson for portraying the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol as a mostly peaceful affair. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre spoke to reporters at the White House Wednesday. We agree with the Fox Nation's own attorneys and executives who have repeatedly stressed in multiple courts of law that Tucker Carlson is not credible when it comes to this issue. Carlson made the claims after his program was granted exclusive access to more than 40,000 hours of Capitol surveillance footage by the Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Meanwhile, new documents from the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit filed against Fox News by Dominion Voting Systems revealed Tucker Carlson texted a co-worker two days before the Capitol insurrection, writing of Trump, quote, I hate him passionately. I can't handle much more of this. Carlson continued about Trump, quote, what he's good at is destroying things. He's the undisputed world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong, Tucker Carlson said about Donald Trump. And longtime civil rights activist and South Carolina community organizer Kevin Alexander Gray died Wednesday after suffering a heart attack. He was 65 years old. In the 1980s, Gray served as South Carolina campaign manager for Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign and helped lead protests against South Africa's apartheid government. He was a past president of the South Carolina ACLU and fought for years to get the Confederate battle flag removed from South Carolina's state capitol grounds. The flag was ultimately moved to a museum in 2015 following the massacre of nine black worshippers by a racist gunman at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. Kevin Gray spoke to Democracy Now! after the murders. When you talk about white supremacy as a structure, you have to talk about white supremacy as the structure that permeates America, that the foundation of our politics in this country is white supremacy. White supremacy is not merely the Ku Klux Klan and race hate groups. White supremacy is a structure which keeps a, uh, people down based on race, that keeps people in power. Racism is about power. To see our many interviews with Kevin Alexander Gray over the years, visit our website, democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Louisville, Kentucky. On Wednesday, the U.S. Justice Department released a scathing report accusing the Louisville police of unlawfully discriminating against the city's black population as well as people with behavioral health disabilities. Attorney General Merrick Garland laid out the DOJ's findings Wednesday. The report finds that LMPD uses excessive force 
including unjustified neck restraints and the unreasonable use of police dogs and tasers, conducts searches based on invalid warrants, unlawfully executes warrants without knocking and announcing, unlawfully stops, searches, detains, and arrests people, unlawfully discriminates against black people in enforcement activities, violates the rights of people engaged in protected speech, critical of policing, and along with Louisville Metro, discriminates against people with behavioral health disabilities when responding to them in crisis. The Justice Department has also identified deficiencies in LMPD's response to and investigation of domestic violence and sexual assault. LMPD has relied heavily on pretextual traffic stops in black neighborhoods. In these stops, officers use the pretense of making a stop for minor traffic offense in order to investigate for other crimes. Some officers have demonstrated disrespect for the people they are sworn to protect. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal, and boy. Kristen Clark, the assistant attorney general for civil rights at the Justice Department, detailed more of the DOJ's findings about the Louisville Police Department. Officers also routinely conduct stops, searches, and arrests without the required constitutional justification. These tools are essential to enhance public safety, but when used without restraint, they turn into weapons of oppression, submission, and fear. We found that LMPD officers use excessive and dangerous tactics such as neck restraints, canines, and tasers, even against people who pose no imminent threat to the officer or others. We also found that officers misdirect their resources and violate fundamental principles of equal justice by selectively targeting and disproportionately subjecting black residents to unlawful policing. The Justice Department began investigating the Louisville Police Department after the police killing of Brianna Taylor, who was shot dead in her own home during a no-knock raid in March of 2020, March 13th. On Wednesday, Brianna's mother, Tamika Palmer, spoke to reporters about the DOJ's findings. It's heartbreaking to know that everything you've been saying from day one has to be said again um, through this manner, you know, it, that it took this to even have somebody look into this department. General Garland specifically talked about the Warren and Rihanna's apartment. When you heard that today, what went through your mind? Because he essentially said that they shouldn't have been. Um, heartbreak all over again, because I knew that to begin with. Um, I said that from the very beginning. Um, we've asked that question a hundred times over and over for no one to ever give you a, a direct answer. Lenita Baker, an attorney for Breonna Taylor's family, also spoke at the news conference. We are encouraged by the Department of Justice findings today. However, it is unfortunate that it took the murder of Breonna Taylor and protest after protest after protests through 2020 to come to this point. 
As you saw, this is a patterns and practice investigation, and the findings relate to patterns and practice. It is not one particular case. We're joined now by Sadiqa Reynolds, the former president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Sadiqa. So, talk about the significance of this Justice Department two-year investigation, this whole issue of finding pattern and practice. I know this is not a surprise to you. No, thank you so much for having me again. It is not a surprise to me or anyone who's been paying attention in Louisville, Kentucky. And I think Breonna Taylor's mother said it best. It's sad that this had to be on the back of her daughter. It's sad because we have been complaining about things with our police department. And this report, quite frankly, is scathing, excessive force searches based on invalid warrants. And again, I want to focus on the fact that this is patterns and practice. This is not one-offs. This is the way they do business. Unlawfully executing search warrants, unlawfully stopping, searching, detaining, unlawfully discriminating against Black people specifically. I think that is a really scathing indictment on this police department. Their conduct is illegal and black people are disproportionately experiencing the illegal activity in Louisville. Um, it, this report is, and even where it talks about behavioral health and, and what is happening in pe with people, you know, who have behavioral health issues in our community. Again, something we've been talking about, something we've been asking for support on. There, there are, um, there are a lot of reasons for Louisvillians to be very concerned today for those who did not believe the protesters, for those who didn't think uh, people should have been in the streets. I mean, when you hear that, in fact, police are engaging in illegal activity related to people who are using protected speech because they're critical of policing, you should be concerned. And so I, I think that I hope this report will generate the conversations that have to happen in my city in order to really change the way policing happens in every community. I hope that Louisville can step up and really be, um, you know, just a, a, some sort of example of how you can make change, because right now we're, we're, we're doing a horrible job of policing. So if you can talk about what's going to come of this, the whole discussion of an independent monitor and a consent decree with the Louisville Police Department, what does that mean? So they will have a, an independent organization come in that will monitor the work of the police department. They will obviously um, complete a corrective action plan, and then that, that organization will work, work to make sure that LMPD is doing what they've said they're supposed to do. So I think for community, there was a conversation last night with DOJ. The next steps will be for us to learn about what organization has been chosen, what are the steps. Obviously, there are about 36 steps that DOJ DOJ has recommended, but there could be more. We've got to think about the timeline. So there are a lot of things that need to happen. But I, I also think the, the thing that no one really talks about is, is, is an acknowledgement. This, this is somewhat vindication, quite frankly, for a lot of people in Louisville who have been, um, quite frankly, traumatized by what we have experienced over the last couple of years. Uh, what makes me hopeful is I know through my work with Perception Institute, that a mind that can be, th these police officers have been trained in this way. It's poorly trained, poor training. It's not following policy and procedures where they do have it. There's been no accountability. 
So we do have to go back and look at officers who have violated the law to see how they have been handled. I don't think the community just wants to push that under the rug. I think we need to see uh, for those officers who did. There's some officers we know what happened, right? If they were throwing drinks at um, people who were experiencing mental health issues on the street. Those officers have been arrested. But there are other things that are outlined in this report. We don't know what happened with those officers. We don't know what happened with the officer that called black people animals. We don't know what happened with the officer or the supervisor who made jokes when he got to the scene and the officer told him that he had beat the woman in the face with a flashlight. We don't know if there was ever any discipline. We have to know about those things. We have to understand understand who we are moving forward with in our police department. So let's go back to the case of Breonna Taylor, which sparked all of this. As her mother said, OK, so now we know what she knew and what so many people, especially African-Americans in Louisville, knew three years ago about the pattern in practice. But no officer has been charged in the murder of Breonna Taylor. Is that investigation ongoing? Even one of the officers who was charged was not charged for shooting her, but for his bullets ending up in the apartment of a white couple next door. And let me let me say something else about that case. Not only are they not charged with her murder, the officer who was shot, Officer Mattingly, who went in, is actually suing Kenny, the boyfriend, for shooting him. So they went in unannounced. We, we see all of this information about the, the poor way that they handled, the illegal way that they handled um, no-knock warrants, right? So we know exactly what happened in Breonna Taylor's case. So not only are they not charged with killing her, they, they have an officer who has the audacity to sue the person who had every right to defend himself. It is incredible. This police department, the way that they operate, their procedures, their practices, the pattern here— it is atrocious. So all of these past investigations really do need to be reopened. And but for the Department of Justice, we would have absolutely no hint of justice in this community. Not the Commonwealth attorney, not the attorney general. No one has offered us any sense of justice. But for Merrick Garland and his office, all of this would still be covered up. All of it. You're talking about Kenneth Walker, who actually the city of Louisville settled with him uh, something like two million dollars. But he is being sued. I mean, the police, just for people to understand, what was it about one o'clock in the morning that they barged in? He was terrified, said he did not know they were even police. That's right. In fact, and he even called 911 to say, can you send the police? And they have a recording of that. We knew something was wrong with Kenneth Walker's case when he was released from custody after shot shooting a police officer. We knew that there was more information. And that's really what what pushed people into the streets in Louisville. But the other thing that I, that is interesting to me about Kenneth Walker's case, you also see when you watch the video that they said didn't exist that we know now, of course, did um, when he comes down the steps and he comes out of the apartment, they have the dogs and they threaten to to turn the dogs on him. So now that I read this report and I see how often people are being bit by canines, this Breonna Taylor case is the is an example of almost everything 
that was wrong and continues to be wrong with our police department. And let me say, I am not suggesting that they have not attempted to make some changes. We have an interim police chief. We're going to you know, see what happens. But at the end of the day, we have got to have complete honesty, complete disclosure, and we absolutely need investigations into some of these things um, that have been identified. We want to know who the officers were, what happened, who the supervisors were that didn't do their jobs. We need to be rid of them. We actually need to go into the weeds on this. It's way too important. And finally, it's not only Louisville, the Department of Justice, and, and of course, Merrick Garland's attorney general, but the assistant attorney general, um, Kirsten Clark, is, is in charge of all of this. We played a clip of her earlier, longtime civil rights attorney, um, but said, for example, they're going to be investigating the Memphis Police Department. Yeah, this is this is about systems and systemic change. This is this is and this is what I said yesterday. We know that there are some good officers in this country, no doubt. There are people who are signing up to really serve and protect, and they believe in that. The problem is that the system is corrupt. And sometimes people want to say the system is broken. I think the system works just as it was designed to work. It was designed to discriminate against black people, poor people. So so what we have are systems that absolutely need to be disrupted. If your mind can be trained to be um, biased. If your mind can be trained um, to to do these things, then we can untrain the mind. We can do this different. But these officers and the people who um, control them have to be willing to engage. We have to because at the at its core, this is really dehumanization. That is the problem across the country. These officers get this power and they don't see my humanity because of my black skin. That has to stop. We have to do something different. So this is more than just training on policy and procedure. This is about how you train your mind, how you see people, how you react to your own biases. So we've got to do something different in America. And certainly in Louisville, we will be doing something different. But it's going to be a long, hard road. And 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 I'll say this, too. We have a lot of people in the business community and I'm sure this doesn't just happen in Louisville. They are so critical of protesters because it disrupts business. It's not good for tourism. Let me tell you what's not good for people's lives to be terrorized in their own homes, to not be able to rest, to not be able to sleep. When you read this report and understand how bad this police department has been, uh, there people should actually be thanking protesters for raising their voices and maybe saving their children. Sadiqua Reynolds, we want to thank you for being with us, attorney, community activist, former president and CEO of Louisville Urban League. Next up, apartheid American style. We go to Jackson, Mississippi, where white Republican state lawmakers want to set up an unelected superstructure to oversee the black majority speak, uh, city. We'll speak with Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba. Stay with us.
Black Nile by the legendary saxophonist and composer Wayne Shorter, who died last week at the age of 89. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we go deeper into the southern United States, as we turn to Mississippi, where white Republican state lawmakers are attempting to essentially create an unelected superstructure to oversee the black-majority capital city of Jackson. This week, the state's majority white Republican-led state Senate passed its version of a bill by the majority white and uh, passed last month by the majority white and Republican-led House that would allow Mississippi's Supreme Court Chief Justice, who is white, to handpick local judges in Jackson. Prosecutors and public defenders will be selected by the state attorney general, who also is white. Jackson has the highest percentage of black residents of any major city in the United States. Supporters of House Bill 1020 claim it would make Jackson safer. Democratic Mississippi Senator John Horn disputed this ahead of Tuesday's vote on the revised bill. It is vastly improved from where it started, but it is still a snake, and it needs to be defeated. Senator Carter made the point that crime is on the rise in Jackson, and he's correct. But to Senator Barrett's point, there is absolutely no empirical data, no evidence that adding these temporary appointed judges will do anything to stem the rise in crime in Jackson. There's no data. Both versions of House Bill 1020 would expand the role of the Capitol Police, which has no oversight board and has not been transparent in reporting officer-involved shootings. Last year, the Capitol Police shot three people in a six-week period, including Jalen Lewis, an unarmed 25-year-old black man and father of two. His mother, Arkella Lewis, testified at a public hearing this week against expanding the Jackson Capitol Police powers as she explained what happened to her son. They then suddenly noticed that a white man was standing outside of the window with his gun drawn. He did not ask Jalen for any information. He did not tell Jalen who he was. Before they could do anything, the man shot Jalen in the head through the window. I've been doing everything I can to try to get information about what has happened. The Capitol Police and the NBI have not even contacted me, providing me no information. No body cam footage. No dash cam footage. No police report or autopsy report. Not even a phone call to acknowledge his death. For more, we go to Jackson, Mississippi, where we're joined by two guests. Makani Temba is a volunteer with the Jackson Undivided Coalition, chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies. She writes about this bill in her piece for the nation, headlined Apartheid American Style. Also with us, the mayor of Jackson, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, who's accused state lawmakers of trying to colonize Jackson. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Mayor Jackson—Mayor uh, Lumumba— Please start off by explaining what these bills are about. Uh, well, Amy, simply put, these bills are an attack on black leadership, uh, a, ways to, a way to seize power of a majority black city, which cannot be seized democratically uh, through an election. And so state lawmakers are attempting to legislate uh, their way into control of the city. Uh, this bill is part and parcel of a larger effort 
uh, which not only attempts to take over the judicial process, uh, but also uh, we've seen efforts to take over our water system uh, now that we received over uh, nearly $800 million in federal funding to contribute towards its repair. Uh, you know, uh, former efforts to not over, only take over our school district, uh, but also to take over our airport. Uh, and so this is uh, what we're seeing not only in Jackson, but uh, in less obvious ways, there are efforts uh, around the country to do that. Uh, I've talked to colleagues or, or comrades of mine in uh, St. Louis and Mayor Tashara Jones, uh, and I know a similar effort is afoot uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and so it is apartheid, uh, as we have called it. Uh, it is plantation politics. Uh, and there it is used under the Trojan horse of public safety. Uh, first and foremost, a, a statistical analysis has determined uh, that Jackson may not even be, have the highest crime rate in the state of Mississippi when you get into it uh, by scale. Uh, but beyond that, if there's a true emphasis or concern over the issues of public safety, uh, then the state can make investments in areas where we've asked them to. First and foremost, their own state crime lab uh, has a backlog that prevents cases from going uh, forward to trial uh, and justice delayed is justice denied as we, we have we have known it to be. Uh, they have not supported the request of our police department and ballistic technology that helps them associate guns involved in other crimes. Uh, they haven't supported our real-time uh, command center that we've asked them, which is a 21st century uh, tool used to support that, nor have they supported our efforts of uh, credible messenger or, or violence interruption training. We've gone to Wells Fargo Bank and National League of Cities, who have actually been the ones to give us seed money so that we can make sure that we have additional interventions towards the issues of crime. Lastly, I will say that when you do a, a truly... Uh, intensive study of what the crimes or the violence in Jackson per, uh, persist of, you find that it is largely based on interpersonal conflict, which is very difficult to police. And so simply having an occupying force that abuses community does not make us any safer. Uh, over the last six months, there have actually been at least seven officer-involved incidents uh, for the J Capitol Complex Police. And not only JPD, but the surrounding jurisdictions over the last two to three years uh, have not amounted to that number of officer-involved incidents. This reminds me so much of what happened in Michigan um, when the governor, the white Republican governor at the time, um, appointed emergency managers, especially for black cities. And, of course, we know what happened in Flint with the water supply uh, being disconnected and being wholly contaminated. Uh, the governor there was Rick Snyder. Um, can you— uh, clarify what you just said about you think this started uh, with the water supply of Jackson, which has been so problematic, and now getting this influx of state and federal money that the state wants to grab the money. Yeah, well, well, it started even before that. Uh, the first effort uh, or obvious effort would have been over the takeover of our airport, which we have been fighting uh, for the better part of five to six years now. Uh, but with respect to our, our water system, uh, we have had decades of deferred maintenance and neglect. Uh, you know, there's, this is an area where I have to give my predecessor, predecessors their, their just due and that they have all asked for resources in order to help, uh, with Jackson's water system and the, and the, uh, the issues of capital improvement. We have nearly 50% loss in our system, uh, among other capital investments that have to be made. 
and so as we have gone to the state legislature each and every year asking for support and saying that it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when these things will fail, uh, they have displayed a deliberate indifference or a willful neglect of the city of Jackson. Uh, and so we had to go through extraordinary means uh, to go through the federal government and working with the EPA uh, and giving credit where it is due. Uh, the Biden administration provided uh, collectively nearly $800 million, which now we have a third party administrator that we're working in conjunction with through a agreed order uh, to make certain that we can see the prioritization uh, and sustainability of our system. And now that we have found ways to uh, solve our problems for ourselves, the state has taken a, a negative uh, outlook on that. Uh, and, and this all comes on the heels of, of our ability to get that those resources where they not only attacked uh, the, the effort to take over our water system, but you see simultaneously an effort uh, to take over our judicial process. And so it's not just attack on the city of Jackson. It's a, an attack on the black judges. Uh, in Jack, in, in Miss, in Hines County, it's an attack on the black prosecutor. Uh, it's simply stating that, that, uh, they want to seize control over all of the points of, of, uh, governance that we, we now have control over. Uh, and I would lastly say that Trey Lamar, uh, the representative who initiated or introduced the bill, when asked why he believed that these, uh, judges should be appointed rather than elected, his response well, was, well, we simply want the best and the brightest. Uh, that feeds into uh, the notion uh, to the false narrative of Black people being inferior and incapable of choosing the leadership which best represents their interests. I wanted to bring Makani Temba into this conversation. Volunteer with Jackson Undivided Coalition wrote a great piece in The Nation. Um, can you talk about the historical significance of Jackson um, and particularly go back to um, Mississippi went from having one of the most radical changes, you point out, after the Civil War with a black majority legislature uh, to what we're seeing today with a white majority, super uh, white supermajority running the state and what comes of that. Well, good morning and thank you. You know, the history is really important. And one of the reasons why Mississippi had such a progressive constitution and, and legislature during Reconstruction was that there wasn't the kind of interference by the white power structure that sort of came out of slavery, because Mississippi has a sort of history of having a relationship with its residents that's more extraction. There's no pretense around whether they're here for the benefit of the residents of the state. So there's there's the attack against Jackson as a black city and, and Jackson, which has been a battleground since Reconstruction, really, around who controls it. And it wasn't until the federal government post-Reconstruction that led up to the sort of shift in 1890 with a different constitution that was sort of grounded and rooted in white supremacy it was the federal government actually that provided arms for the Confederacy to recapture the state. And it was a bloody battle, much of which took place in in Jackson and Madison um, for, you know, for the control of the state and who would do it. And, and, and it's really only been, um, you know, sort of the bad reapportionment, racist lines, you know, packing districts. The only way that they are able to rule as a white supermajority is really about 
illegal unjust tactics that that they've created law around, but they're really not just. They're really not providing the folks of Mississippi true representation. We would never have a Republican supermajority if there was, um, you know, accurate black representation by state districts. And that said, the other issue that we're dealing with that's sort of part of the legacy of this relationship of extraction to the people of Mississippi um, from its legislators, and, and I should say it's predominantly white legislature that we've had since 1890, has been the way in which the, and, and this is in, in many ways a federal issue because of states' rights, states are not really accountable to making sure that they spend the dollars they receive on need. So a place like Jackson that has a lot of need around infrastructure because of the lack of investment by the state and really not only divestment and lack of investment and neglect, but also literally creating barriers to, for the expenditures of money that are directed to the state to the city. Jackson was the only city in the state that had an extra layer of of rules and approvals, the only city in the state for how it would spend its federal dollars that were allocated directly. And the state has no accountability when they write these proposals and talk about we need money because of X this and this thing. Oftentimes they're talking about incidents and issues that are in black cities and black towns, but they have no accountability to spend that money that way. And in fact, the the legislation that seeks to create the so-called regional water authority to take Jackson out of the picture in terms of control over its resources does not even require that authority to fix the problem. It only in requires that authority to receive the dollars and spend the dollars, which is very different. I want to end with um, <clears throat> with uh, Governor um, Lumumba, with Mayor Lumumba. And you can tell us if you're going to be running for governor, but that, that was just a slip of the tongue there. Um, what do you demand of the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, and also the president of the United States, Joe Biden? We, we demand equity. Uh, we, we demand fair representation. Uh, we demand the ability to uh, govern for ourselves and have home rule. Uh, my principal aim uh, in my leadership, uh, one that I personally subscribe to in my life, is one centered around self-determination. Uh, and so we want to democratize power in our, in our city. Um, and so while we are trying to make efforts to build a vision of public safety, which is uh, which is which is rooted in a foundation of community trust. Uh, these efforts of this CCID bill uh, set to uh, roll that back, uh, set to create a more adverse relationship between law enforcement and and our police department, one which is reflective of what we see around the nation. Uh, while I certainly would not uh, re uh, report to you that the Jackson Police Department is perfect, uh, I will say that that we are aiming and and making strides towards making sure that it is more consistent with the relationship uh, that I just shared with you and, and that we're trying to, to build. Uh, and so uh, we simply don't want to see that government interference that McConaughey was speaking of. Uh, we simply don't want to see uh, funds, federal funds diverted away from Jackson, uh, which has systematically been the practice in Mississippi for some time. 
Uh, in fact, the governor even boasted uh, when at his time as secretary of state, uh, how he was able, not secretary of state, state auditor, uh, how he was able to divert funding from the city of Jackson and was proud of that. Uh, and so uh, we're just aiming uh, to to get our fair share uh, and, and no longer be under the thumb of the state of Mississippi. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us. Uh, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Shokwe Antar Lumumba, and Makani Temba of the Jackson Undivided Coalition will link to your piece in the nation, apartheid American style. Next up, we stay in the South. We go to Atlanta and the fight to stop Cop City. Twenty-three more protesters have been charged with domestic terrorism. Stay with us. Brixton by The Clash. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we go to Atlanta, where prosecutors have charged another 23 forest defenders with domestic terrorism after their arrest late Sunday at a festival near the site of Cop City, a massive police training facility being built in the Willani Forest. The arrests followed clashes between police and protesters Sunday afternoon. This comes less than two months after Atlanta police shot and killed Manuel Teran, a 26-year-old environmental defender who also went by the name Tortuguita. Earlier this week, organizers with the Faith Coalition to Stop Cop City gathered to condemn the plans to build Cop City and the police department's crackdown on protesters. This is Reverend Kiana Jones. The reality of it is that the ones who are engaging in violence are the police, and they're from right here in Atlanta, Georgia. You got APD, you got Georgia State Police, you got GBI, you got Georgia State Troopers, you got everybody except the MARTA police who are engaging in violence and terrorism against the people who are standing against this illegal land swap. On Wednesday, a group of Muskogee Creek activists interrupted a regional commission meeting and attempted to give an eviction notice to the Atlanta mayor. Objection! Objection! We have a letter being delivered from the Muskogee Creek Nation on behalf of Muskogee Creek spiritual leadership in opposition to I came all the way on the Trail of Tears to deliver this letter to you folks. Um, we want you to know that the contemporary Muscogee people are now making their journey back to our homelands 
and hereby give notice to Mayor Andrew Dickens, the Atlanta City Council, the Atlanta Police Department, the Atlanta Police Foundation, the DeKalb County Sheriff's Office, and so-called Cop City, that you must immediately vacate Muskogee homelands and cease violence and policing of indigenous and black people in Muskogee lands. We also ask for an independent investigation into the assassination of our relative Tortuguita and that the charges be dropped against Walani forest defenders. To talk more about the growing movement to fight Cop City in Atlanta, we're joined by two guests, Micah Herskins, local community organizer in Atlanta, Georgia, and Kamau Franklin, as founder of the organization Community Movement Builders. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Kamau, let's begin with you. Talk about what happened this weekend. I mean, in the national media, it's um, that basically domestic terrorists attack the police, and so uh, many of them were arrested. Yeah, I mean, the national media is basically uh, forwarding or believing or putting out the, the media and narrative of the police themselves. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. What we had over the weekend was a festival um, in Walani Park uh, with hundreds of people gathered uh, to denounce Cop City, to celebrate the Walani Force. Uh, there was a breakaway action in which there was civil disobedience, um, and there was uh, an attempt to disable our property. The police overreacted, came in, uh, chased people down. They then decided to go a mile away and invade the, the music festival. They broke up the entire festival. They threatened people's lives. They threw people to the ground. Uh, they arrested people randomly and indiscriminately. And as you stated, we now have 23 more cases of domestic terrorism filed. We had a total of 35 arrests at that rally and demonstration. Uh, and they continue to put out a narrative to scare people and to criminalize the larger movement to stop Cop City. I want to go to a forest defender who was at the Peaceful Action and Concert Sunday. Um, they sent this to us, uh, the audio, describing what happened that night, asking to remain anonymous. Their voice has been distorted for their safety. When police rolled armored vehicles onto the field and approached the music festival group, um, brought out riot shields, everyone stood together and demanded that we be let go to go home and only if we went all together. And the police um, were, were forced to let that happen. Um, and it, it was really uh, scary and disheartening. People were afraid. People were afraid for their lives after Tortuguita was killed in these woods, after the violence that the police were showing. They were charging people earlier in the night and threatening to tase them. And then when people stood together and kept each other safe, it was so beautiful. It's felt like a punishment for standing up, for exerting our First Amendment rights, for showing a united front um, to the power structure of the city. And it's felt really scary, like, that it's possible that we're watching the future of protest for um, our future um, protest against police brutality, protest against climate change. Um, we're seeing it crush um, right here in front of our eyes. Again, that is a forest defender who we're not identifying. But, Micah Herskin, um, can you talk about the history of the Stop Cop City as its known movement? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a movement that goes back years now. Um, when the proposal to build Cop City and to destroy up to 380 acres of forest land first went public back in 2021, there was immediately um, a really broad community coalition that formed, um, you know, against Cop City. People were canvassing neighborhoods, petitioning, flyering, showing up at city council um, on the day of the final vote where city council voted to approve Cop City, there were 17 hours of public comment from just local community members saying, you know, we do not want this facility to be built. We need this forest land. It's critical for our communities. It's critical environmental protection. Um, and of course, the city council approved it anyway. And since then, the movement has continued, and it's only grown, um, you know, especially in the last year, um, as police have escalated their tactics, escalated their raids and their violence. Um, support has, you know, come in from all over the country of people who recognize that this is uh, absolutely an Atlanta issue, but it's also an issue that's going to impact people across the country and across the world. Come out, Franklin. Have has there been any update on the police killing of the forest defender known as Tortuguita? Uh, his mother came up um, uh, from Central America. What has happened and what has the further investigation found? Well, so far, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation has stonewalled releasing further evidence about what happened that day. Uh, the family is persisting. Uh, they've hired attorneys. Uh, they've gotten the release of several videotapes. But other than that, the Georgia uh, Bureau of Investigation, which, you know, has no real legitimate authority or right to investigate uh, this violent crime by the police because they were part of it. Um, and so we think that is why an independent investigation is needed. Uh, the information that has been released so far backs up completely the claim that organizers and activists and forest defenders have made. One, that uh, the police gave no warning. Uh, there's no videotape whatsoever of the surrounding scenes uh, in which you can hear any warning by the police. Two, the police claimed that there was one shot given, a one shot by Tortuguita, and then there was a return of fire. The blast of fire that you can hear on the videotape that was released, a body camera imagery of officers away from the scene, was a burst of fire. And they themselves commented that it sounded like suppressed fire, which is code word for police fire. So we continue to uh, protest, to demand an independent investigation that has nothing to do with the authorities who were involved in the murder of Tortuguita, because we think that's the only way we're going to find out the truth about what took place. I want to go to Reverend Kiana Jones, uh, who we referenced earlier, a member of the Faith Coalition to Stop Cop City, speaking at an Atlanta City Council meeting Monday. What will your legacy be, you so-called legacies of black misleadership sitting up here on this council? Let me tell you something. Representation is not enough when you don't represent the people who elected you. The people came out and spoke clearly. And let me go to the Bible one more again and say that we are here as clergy to cry loud and spare not. We are opening our mouths and crying with a loud voice to say that we don't want Cop City. I live in East Atlanta. I don't want Cop City. I got five black children. I don't want Cop City. I like breathing clean air. I don't want Cop City. I want to drink clean water. I don't want Cop City. I don't want Black Hawk, black hawk helicopters landing around the corner from my house. I don't want Cop City. 
I don't. My neighbors don't. My granny don't. She's been in her house almost 50 years, and you suckers will never get it through gentrification because we knew what to do. So, again, that's Reverend Kiana Jones, a member of the Faith Coalition to Stop Cop City. There's also the environmentalists who want to preserve the forest. There are indigenous people, the Muscogee as well. Um, and you have those who are deeply concerned about uh, police misconduct. This, Kamal, this facility, this police training facility, would be the largest in the country. Um, and has any part of it been built? Do you really see yourself stopping this? Well, the struggle continues. No part of it has been built. They've cleared off some forest land and they've gated off certain parts of the area. But to this stage, two years later, nothing has been built. And that's because of the fortitude, the diversity uh, of that movement, the tactics, the tactical diversity, the strategic diversity, the fact that we continue to press forward, even when the mayor of Atlanta, unlike the mayor of Jackson, the mayor of Atlanta, who teams up with the right wing white supremacist governor of Georgia to suppress organizers and activists in the city and to work with the governor to give state terrorism charges. We have a weak mayor. We have a weak city council that gives into right wing demands. But that is not, again, stop this movement from moving forward. Uh, we are going to continue to press to stop cop city. We're going to continue to try to bring economic pain to Atlanta by doing what we can to stop the Democratic National Convention from convening in Atlanta. And Atlanta is also attempting to get the fight for World Cup there. We're going to do everything within our power to let them know that if they come to Atlanta, they will be protested against. Uh, Micah Herskin, today is a National Day of Action Against Police Terror. Can you talk about the actions that are planned today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, there, you know, there's been actions planned all throughout the week. Um, today, um, one of the actions is going to culminate in um, a rally at the King Center, um, where folks will be coming out from all over again to say, you know, the community is not in support of Cop City, despite the city's messaging that, you know, the entire movement is actually made up of outside agitators, which is a trope that's been used, you know, since the civil rights movement and before to discredit movements. Um, this is people in Atlanta who have been, you know, crying out for years now. Now that you know, we do not want we do not want Cop City, and so you know, this is just another another show of community support and a community opposition um, to this facility. Um, and, and you know, I know Kamal has been a part of planning that event. I don't know if you and Kamal well, Franklin, that, if you want to you know, comment, not only are we doing actions here in Atlanta, but today is actually a National Day against police violence. Uh, people can go to nationaldayofaction.info uh, to see that there is a list of over 20 cities that are going to be doing everything from banner drops to civil disobedience to teach-ins to direct action to rallies and demonstrations. We must use this time to revive the national movement to stop police violence and police terror. We can no longer rely on, for those who have uh, the Democrats or policymakers to make changes for us, we have to get back out there in the streets and demand not only our rights, but stop the police violence against our communities. We want to thank you both for being with us. Kamau Franklin, founder of Community Movement Builders, and Micah Herskin, Atlanta community organizer. And we'll link to your piece in PRISM. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gester, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasana, Tammy Warren, Jerina Dura, Sam Alcoff, Tamaria Studio. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.